0: Good morning. Okay, so uh, hopefully so far this study in Revelation has been helpful and um, it's been good in seeing the big picture of the book. And for a lot of you, I've had a lot of conversations, I'm sure this is refreshing uh, because the most popular approach, the most, you know, like uh, what is what is this detail? When is it going to happen? You know, um, is it is it Nero? Is it Napoleon? Is it is it, is, is it Mussolini? Like we're trying to, to tell the future through the uh, newspaper headlines. Um, newspapers were a thing that most of us grew up with uh, that came through the door. That's where we got our news, if, if some of you are shocked. Um, but I think often we, we'll, we'll read Revelation like it's, it's a series of uh, dominoes. And okay, this thing, I'm, I'm looking for this thing so that the, this thing can happen, so that this thing can happen, so that this thing can, can happen. Um, and then we end up missing the uh, point of the book. Um, and so I think this is especially helpful for you if you come from a dispensational background. Um, if you don't know what that is, praise God. Um, but <laughs> if, if, you, if, if you did, um, or if your church didn't have a, a position, it was probably dispensational. Um, meaning that this was all in, in the future, um, that, that, um, that we, are, we are looking for literal beasts with, a, with a seven heads, and we're, we're looking for all these, these things, and we're assuming that this is the year. This is the year that this stuff happens, so we're reading the, the, the newspaper to see the, the terror and damnation instead of looking to Christ. Um, and so reading Revelation chroni- chronologically like that and literally like that, um, it feels natural. Like, that's how we read narrative. We read narrative and say, okay, this is what this means. This is, this is uh, referring to this event, and this event follows this event, so that makes sense. Revelation is not narrative. We said this in week one. It is apocalyptic. It is revealing of the last things. It looks back to the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It looks forward to fulfillment of things to come, but it is a book written to the church Now. It was written to the, first, to the church in the first century. It was applicable to them, and it is applicable to us in the church in every age. But we, we, we struggle with this because we like the other approach. We like being in on the secret knowledge. Oh, what is this? What is the mark of the beast? And, uh, you know, uh, looking out for this or that. And we're arrogant. We think that the Bible was written to us first, that it doesn't matter to anyone else before or after. What does it mean to me? The Bible was not written to you. John was writing to seven real churches at the end of the first century, and this meant a lot for a persecuted church, and it has meant a lot for every persecuted church throughout the church age. And so um, it is tempting, especially in the section we're going to get get into, to interpret it through the headlines, but it doesn't fit the genre or the structure of the book. Um, So it is true that Revelation is often puzzling. But uh, the running analogy I'm going to use this week is it is a puzzle, but the uh, pieces interlock and they, and they fit together. And sometimes if you like puzzles like I do, sometimes you'll like sit at, a, sit at a table and you stare at the pieces for so long, like the rest of the room becomes blurry. You got to kind of step back for a minute and gain some, gain some perspective. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, if you were here on week one, Uh, There may still be some outlines back there. Uh, Revelation, we've broken it into seven parallel sections. I haven't broken it into it. That's how the book's structured. This one, thankfully, is only two chapters. So we get to catch our breath a little bit with a shorter section, kind of reorient ourselves to the approach of the book. So I thought it'd be good um, to show you where we've been so far. Um, And so I want to show you why Revelation remains relevant. Uh, These will be on the screen. We've gone through four sections so far, chapters one through three. Christ is building his church to be a light in the world. And his church, capital C, gathers in many churches, lowercase c. And those gatherings are always at odds with the world. And those gatherings are always some kind of mixture of truth and error. Sound relevant for today? Absolutely. Chapters 4 through 7, the lamb is on the throne, still there. He is sovereign over all creation, still is. He is the one who is worthy to unseal the judgment that is coming on the world. And he's the one who is able to eternally seal his people in him. 8 through 11, we, he, we saw the uh, heavenly trumpets, which we're going to draw on a lot this week. They warn of, of judgment. Judgment has been promised from of old. All the way back to Genesis 3.15, we saw it last week. But people will hate the saints. They will not repent, and the final trumpet of God's wrath is still to come. Still true, still applicable. And then last week, 12 through 14, Satan, the great dragon, hates Christ, the child. So he pursues the church, the woman who birthed him, and he brings his blasphemous beasts along with him. But the saints will endure. Why? Because the Lord nourishes and protects them, and he saves them from his wrath. That's where we ended last week. This week will be all about the wrath of God. So, all those things still hold true. All those things are applicable. That is why we're studying Revelation. Not to get caught in sensationalism, but to encourage the church that this is what we are to expect. So, if you'd open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. uh, I'm going to read all of 15. It's eight verses. We can handle it. Revelation 15, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of seven angels were finished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless our time together this morning. Bless the reading of your word inspired by your spirit fulfilled in your son. That your people would be encouraged, would be built up. That the wicked would know that the judgment is coming. That the lost would hear of the wrath to come and repent and turn in faith in Jesus Christ to be saved from the judgment to come. But most importantly for your people here, Lord, would we find encouragement in our Savior. Encouragement in our great God who is sovereign over all things. Who is just in his love and his grace and his mercy and who is just, in his wrath, and his judgment, and his vengeance, because you are good in all things. Everything you do is righteous, and true, and for your glory, and we desire to glorify you in our time in your word this morning. We pray these things uh, through the power of your spirit that inspired the word, and that gives us ears to hear, and minds to understand, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we get into this, just a reminder, um, like I said, we're going to slow down a little bit, and so I'm going to be referring uh, back quite a bit to what we've already seen. I'm going to be looking forward to what is to come. I want you to see a lot of these, uh, these uh, parallels, because John is writing as he sees them. So as he sees these, these visions, he's writing. doesn't necessarily mean that that's exactly the order in which they, they, they happen. These are thematic parallels, And verses 1 through 4 are a great example of that. Remember our uh, puzzle analogy. This is just like a puzzle. You put two puzzle pieces together. You know, one's got Pac-Man's mouth and the other one's got a little piece that, that goes in it. But when you stick one piece into the other, it grabs it and pulls it in. A part of it is in one piece, but the most of it is in the other. This is this transitional piece. It is looking back to what we looked at last week, but it is pulling us into the text that we'll look at this week. Um, and so hopefully that, that, that makes sense. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. Verse 1 of chapter 15, then I saw another sign. This is the same language at the beginning of chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven in chapter 12. There is one sign in 12 that takes us from uh, Christ's incarnation to the second coming. There's another sign in chapter 15. Um, And so this is a vantage point, um, a a parallel view of the wrath of God. But again, if you've been paying attention, the wrath of God is a theme throughout the book. This is nothing new. Let's go back to chapter 6, and I'm going to do this quickly. um, Because we've talked about what recapitulation is. It is a restating, resummarizing um, of the uh, same time period with different emphases from a different vantage point. Chapter 6, at the the very end of of chapter 6, the kings of the earth are uh, defeated, which we'll see later on in our section. In in verse 16, they are terrified, and they say, fall on us and hide us from the faith of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So this is a chronological book, and the wrath of God is in chapter 6. How many times does the wrath of God have to come? Uh, We saw it again in chapter 11. In chapter 11, verse 18, there is a song of the redeemed, the church triumphant. At the end of the age, at the end of that section, they are singing, chapter 11, verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came, past tense, and the time for the dead to be judged came. He judged the living and the dead, and the saints were rewarded. We saw it again at the end of chapter 14. This is where we ended last week. Chapter 14, uh, verse 19, the final great harvest. The angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. This is the final wrath of God poured out on the ungodly, on the wicked. And how do we know? Verse 20, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed like a winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. How big is that? That is big. You, that is, that is a, a sea of blood because the wrath of God has been poured out. That kind of sounds like the end, but here we are. We're looking at it again. So also what we're going to see, we're going to be zooming in and out. So that we saw the in, entire period of, of the church age. We're going to zoom out for a moment. We're going to look at the, the throne room of, of heaven, and then we're going to zoom back in so there's a, there's, a, there's a perspective shift that's happening. We're going to zoom back in and look at the bowls in just a moment. Okay. Um, so what's going on here? What's the scene in heaven? What's this vision? Um, seven angels, seven plagues. Remember we said when we hear the number seven, it is symbolic. So we know that there's symbolism here. What is this symbolism? Which are the last? For with them the wrath of God is finished. This is talking about the end. We've already seen that we've already we've seen the end several times. We're going to see the end again next week and the week after. Because remember, this is reiterating this recapitulation is to remind the church: the end is coming, the defeat of Satan is coming, the wrath of God is coming. Stand firm in Christ. Um, and I think many people often another common misconception is that the wrath of God is an Old Testament concept. You ever heard people say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he's angry. The God of the New Testament, he's just happy all the time. God does not change. There is a wrath of God because it is deserved, because people are wicked and hate him. And no, um, no book deals with the wrath of God more in the New Testament than Romans. I want to just do a, um, a quick run through Romans because the New Testament assumes the wrath of God. And the gospel comes out of the wrath of God. We don't. We, we need good news because the bad news is we deserve the wrath of God. The good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. The wrath of God means means a sea of blood to our mortal bodies and eternal torture and torment for our spiritual uh, resurrected bodies. So I want to run through Romans real quick. I want you to see how in Paul's great gospel magnum opus the gospel is always set in contrast to the wrath of God and it's the answer to the wrath of God. Chapter 1 verse 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's what we're going to look at today. The wrath of God is not just for the final day it is for sure but these are this is present tense. The The fallen nature of this world, the the, the wickedness and the hurt that the pain we see around us is the wrath of God against all ungodliness now. Against unrighteous men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Uh, We'll see more of them in a moment. Chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, meaning you won't repent, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul's not saying anything different than what John is. We see the wrath of God, and we'll get to this when we get to the the, uh, bowls, we see glimpses of it, but there is one day when the bowl will be completely emptied and all the wrath of God will be poured out. And if you don't repent, you are storing up that wrath for yourself. Chapter 5, verse 9, when we get to redemption in Christ and justification in him, we love to say, Jesus saved me from my sins. Yes, he did. But it is more important that Jesus saved me from the wrath of God. Chapter 5 verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the good news of the gospel, that in Christ, in our justification, not only are we cleansed from our sin, but we are saved from the wrath of God. And it is, it is supposed to strike fear into you. Why would God do that, you would ask? And you know, we, uh, Paul anticipates that. Let's go to Romans 9. What is God doing? Same reason he does everything for his glory. Romans 9, verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, wait a second, this whole God is, God is love and he's, and he's never angry thing, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, his wrath is even righteous and he desires to show it. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, this is what we're going to see in Revelation, he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why would God do that? In order that, for the purpose of making known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This is why God is doing this. We don't understand how great redemption is and how great our salvation is if we don't understand how great our sin is and how great the wrath of God remains upon us. And God is doing all this so that he can show his glory in saving people for himself, a bride for his son. Even us, especially us, those who he called, not just from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Praise God for that. Um, and then, lastly, Romans twelve nineteen. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay," says the Lord. We don't have to take vengeance. We don't have to get even, because if the Lord doesn't take vengeance now, we know He will on the last day. That is our our comfort. Our God is big and strong and mighty, and He is just. And he will not let any of his enemies go unpunished. And if they hate us for the cause of Christ, they are, his, they are our enemies because they're his enemies and they will not go unpunished. All right. So that's giving us context on the wrath of God. Now, back to Revelation 15. Okay. So getting into verse 2, there's another scene here of the church triumphant worshiping. We, we, we kind of break out of this. We've done this a few times. We did it in chapter 7. We did it in chapter 11. Uh, we did it earlier in chapter five, 4 and 5. But you get the, the church looking at what God has done, past tense, and praising him for it. Now, here's the heavenly scene. There's a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, if you remember back to chapter 4, in, in chapter 4, around the throne of God is a sea of glass. We talked about this. When the, when the sea is like glass, that means there's no storm there is no turbulence. There's no difficulty. But also remember, we, we saw a beast last week who came out of the sea. Because the sea to fishermen is rough and it is turbulent. But this sea, it's like glass. And it's mingled with fire. That means that it's been refined. It's been, it's been purified. God has set everything that upsets the world at ease. It is a complete peace. That's the picture of those who stand in glory, and they have harps in their hand. And they're singing the songs of God Almighty. This is not the uh, boring, lifeless angels on, on harps that, that, that you see in um, in uh, newspaper comics, newspapers, and um, and uh, you know Hallmark movies. These are these are worshiping triumphant saints who have been through the difficulties of life, who have seen the redemption of God. This is a, a glorious picture. And they sing the song of Moses. Um, before we get to the song of Moses, the uh, calmed sea is the same thing that the waters uh, did in the Red Sea after the Israelites crossed. So there's going to be a lot of Exodus uh, imagery. We've, looked, we've done that the last couple weeks. So here they're singing the song of Moses. What was the occasion for the Song of Moses? If you can, turn to Exodus for me. Exodus 14. Because this is important. There's a lot of songs they could have sung. There's a lot of psalms they could have sung. But they sang the Song of Moses. Why? Exodus 14, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Okay, God saves his people. Their enemies are dead. Israel saw the great power. Why does God endure the vessels of wrath? To, that we might see his power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Why does God do anything he does? What we saw in Exodus, what Israel saw, that was a, that was a type, that was a, a shadow that points forward to true Israel, to the, the, the final Exodus. And um, the defeat of the symbolic Egyptians, but all of God's enemies. That's why we read the song of Moses earlier. The same song Israel sung in their deliverance we can sing because our deliverance is greater. Chapter 15, um, if, if you're there, I'm going to, uh, the second half of verse 1. I will sing the song to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown down to the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. This is consistent with his character. And skipping down to verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in all your glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led your steadfast, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. This is true for Israel. This is even more true for us. This is why they're singing the song of Moses, because what that pointed to is now seen in its fulfillment. This is why we read, teach, and apply the Old Testament rightly, because when you see it, it points to Christ. Christ is the true and better Moses. How do we know that? Back in chapter 15, it says, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Moses promised that there'd be a prophet like me who would come from my brother's. The song, every victory song that Israel ever has now becomes a greater and truer victory song in Christ. This is the song of the Lamb. And here's the song, getting into verse 3 and and 4. God was just in pouring out his wrath on Egypt. So he's always just in pouring out his wrath on the ungodly. Our God only acts righteously. He is great. He is amazing, which is why the song reads like this. It's a a summary of the Song of Moses. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of nations. Why does God do this? We should ask ourselves, why does God pour out justice? Why would God have wrath? He does it for the same reason he shows love. He does it for the same reason he shows mercy and the same reason he shows grace. Here's the purpose. Why does God do all this? Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? He pours out wrath for the same reason he pours out love, so that we will fear the name of the Lord and glorify him, that we will see his his holiness, and that all the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed." He endures these vessels of wrath to show glory in the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared for eternity with him. And so before we go on, this is another one of those times of encouragement where you kind of step back. Okay, we're going to talk about wrath here, but don't forget who our God is. Don't forget that he has shown mercy to you. Don't forget that he has done this for for his glory and for your good. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do we truly believe that he is holy? Do we truly believe that he is just? Do we truly believe that he is good? Do we truly believe that he is sovereign? Because if he is, then he always is. Including wrath, including judgment. But if he's not, then we shouldn't trust him. But if he is, all the more reason why we should trust him. But I would argue that most of the struggles in our lives is because we don't trust God. We may say this, but we don't believe it. We don't believe that even in trial and difficulty and judgment, and judgment that God is good and God is just and God is righteous. And somehow we like to put, uh, take God off of, off of the hook and say, you know, this one's this one's this this can't be from God. This has got to be from somewhere else. That is very dangerous territory because what's the alternative? God is the giver of every good thing, and even what seems difficult is good for us. So, um, now we get into this last section in chapter 15. Uh, after this, now there's there's a uh, there's a, a sequence here, um, but there's still parallel ideas. Um, so we'll go through this quickly, and then we'll jump into verse 16 or chapter 16. So after this, I looked in the sanctuary and the tent of witness, and heaven was opened. All right, so this is revealing heaven again. We're kind of, um, we're still looking up, up in heaven, but there's another uh, Exodus imagery here. The tent of witness. This is the tabernacle. What does, what does tabernacle mean? It means dwelling. God dwell with, people in the world, with his people in the wilderness. God's dwelling is in heaven, and he, he opens it up to, to, to John so that John sees this is who God is, same God of Israel, Now he's opening up this witness of what's what's happening, and we're going to see lots of sevens here, seven, 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 more symbolism, more completeness, more fulfillment, more angels. Angels, as we talked about before, angels are, are, are messengers. Angels don't give orders, they carry out orders. Angels are always sent. And so when angels are given plagues and they're given bowls of wrath, they didn't come up with that on their own they're the bowl of wrath it's the wrath of god they're given to it they're given to them from the four living creatures who serve god they're just carrying out god's orders this kind of this this kind of stretches us a little bit remember the question i just asked do you believe that god is always good do you believe that god is always just do you believe that god is always righteous because he's the one who's doing everything we're about to read Okay, and we're going to get into these, these bowls. Now, just kind of recap. The seals, something is sealed when, it, when it's hidden. The, the lamb is worthy to, rev, to open the seals. So seals reveal what God is going to do in judgment. Trumpets announce. They, they warn what God is going to do in judgment. And the bowls pour it out. And they, they all parallel each other. The seals reveal what God's going to do. The trumpets announce it, and the bowls pour it out. What is a bowl? We all have them in our home. They are little containers that that hold things. They hold soup. They hold cereal. They hold the wrath of God. And so everything that has been warned about will now be poured out. And they're golden bowls. They're for royal use. They're God's bowls. They are holy instruments. And the scene here closes in verse verse 8. This is one long sentence, 7 to 8. We see um, how awesome God is. This is one thought from seven to eight. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. God is so holy, so powerful, so glorious. No one dare approach while this is happening. This is how awesome it is that we get a glimpse into the throne room of God. So we've, we've zoomed out. Now we're going to zoom back in. Um, chapter 16, the bowls are poured out. And so a bowl can, can, turn it, can be turned over and everything comes out at once, or a bowl can pour things out slowly. And that's, that's kind of what we're going to see in, in these bowls. You know, think about this. The wrath of God is, is contained in, in, in a bowl, and, and, and over time, he's, he's pouring out wrath upon the wicked in little seasons. Um, we, there's a good parallel here. Um, we've got a lot of young married couples, we've got a lot of babies, uh, hopefully one on the way in the next few minutes if they're not here already. Um, but when, you, when the, the uh, analogy that Paul uses in Romans 8 is that of birthing pains, of uh, contractions. And so the wrath of God is kind of like contractions. We'll see the wrath of God poured out, but they get closer and closer together until one day there is a, a consummation. But Paul describes that as the, um, the uh, birth of the children of God. What is the wrath of God waiting for? It is waiting for all of the people of God to come to saving faith. When the number of the elect has been, has been brought in, the, the uh, wrath of God is going to get closer and closer and closer. And then, once all God's people are secured and sealed, this theme we've seen throughout Revelation, then the final wrath of God will come. So that's kind of how we're going to approach it. They also parallel the trumpets from 8 through 11. But they increase in intensity. Trumpets worn, now the wrath is, is, is here. So the idea here is if you didn't heed the warning of the trumpets in chapters 8 through 11, the wrath of the bulls is coming in, in fulfillment. Um, here's another thing to keep in mind. Um, it is not necessary. It is not most important. Um, it is not the, the point, whether they are chronological or, or literal or not. The point is that they are unavoidable. Everything we are about to see should strike terror into the world and promise that God's wrath is is coming. We're not going to get caught up in the details, but the symbolism is helpful. All right, Um, let's just work through these. The, The first bowl parallels the first trumpet. The first trumpet affected the earth. So does the first bowl. But now we know in this first bowl, that it's upon the people who bear the mark of the beast. Now that we know what the mark of the beast is, those who align themselves and uh, those who worship the beast, those who wear his jersey, carry his flag, that is where um, the wrath of God is going to be poured out on. That's the first one. The, the second trumpet, remember, these are going to increase in escalation. Remember, when we went through the trumpets. The trumpets affected one third of the earth. One-third of the rivers and the seas. The the, the second trumpet also affected the seas, but only one-third of the seas. When we get to the second bowl, all the sea turns to blood. The wrath of God increases. You didn't listen to the warning, the wrath is coming. The third trumpet affects one-third of the the, the rivers, and they become bitter. The third bowl, all the rivers turn to blood. Man, this is getting intense. So, So think about this. You've got death on the earth. You've got death in the seas. You've got death in, in the rivers. Oh, man, now we're starting to get scared. And almost sensing the concern, we zoom out again. And I heard an angel of the Lord, uh, an angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one. As almost if to say, man, like there's, there's blood and there's death and there's, and there's destruction. And, they, and we, we pull out for a second. the angel says, Don't marvel at this. God is still just. God is still good in this. God is holy. Notice the same language we saw in chapter 11. There's a a formula. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who was, who is, and who is to come. But notice here, you are the holy one who was and who is. Why do we forget the last part? From heaven's view, he's already come. This is at the final day. This is the, the, uh, the final time looking to the future. Who was and who is. And you brought these judgments. Why? Why did God bring these judgments? For or because they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. Whatever the world receives, it deserves. Our, this is what it means that our God is a jealous God. He is a consuming fire. You shed the blood of my saints, your blood will be on you. Don't you dare come for my children. That's the picture here. This is exactly what we saw in the fifth seal back in chapter 6. Because what happened? He opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar, chapter 6, verse 9. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who who dwell on the earth. Then to each were given a white robe, that'll come in in a moment, and told them to rest a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete." The birth pains will be complete when all the saints come in. He hears the cries of the saints. And now is the final day when he is pouring it out. You split, you spilled the blood of my own, I will destroy you. And even in case you forget, verse 7, yes, the Lord God the Almighty is true and just in, you, in all of your judgments, in all of his ways. Don't forget that. Back to our regularly scheduled program, the fourth bowl, verse 8. Now we zoom in again. In the fourth trumpet, a third of the sun was, was darkened. Now, the uh, fourth bowl, the, the uh, relief of the sun is, is removed. Now it scorches everyone on earth. Imagine if it was like those two weeks we had at the beginning of, of August all year long. That is just scorching, boiling. If anyone complains about Florida heat, remind them of what's to come. You would think if you start to boil alive under the heat of the sun that you would repent. Of course not. They cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent. They did not give him glory. This is the nature of wicked men. They would rather burn to death and curse God than repent. This is why hell will have no vacancies. They will be lining up outside like it's, like it's Black Friday, cursing God all the way. The fifth trumpet warned us of the kingdom of Satan, that he would unleash these demons on the world. The, the fifth bowl? Is judgment on his throne. We saw this in chapter 9 in the fifth trumpet that the Satan, the great dragon, his forces are going to be released. They're going to torment the world for a while. They're going to pursue the woman because they, they hate the child. And surely once they get defeated, surely once his throne, once his seat of power is destroyed, surely they'll repent at that point. Verse 11, and they curse the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. You don't follow the beast because you haven't been convinced enough of the right arguments. You don't follow the beast for a lack of information. You follow the beast because you love darkness and hate Christ. And you will never repent. Now it escalates into the sixth trumpet. The sixth trumpet. The angels are pouring out, or excuse me, the uh, sixth bowl. And the angels are uh, pouring out the bowl in the great river Euphrates the sixth trumpet also had to deal with the ri- river Euphrates. One third of the, uh, the uh, river would, would uh, kill mankind and angels would send, be sent out for war. Why Euphrates? What's important about this river? This is the river that flowed through the, 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 of, the north of Israel. Um, can't speak this morning. And it supplied water to both Assyria and Babylon. This this uh, river symbolizes the lifeblood of their greatest enemies. And the uh, river that killed one-third of, of mankind, um, now, it's interesting, it's going to be dried up. Huh. When else w- did water become dry? When else did a body of water get dried up? Anyone remember? You know, teaching your, your, your children this. When Israel left Egypt, what happened when they stepped into the Red Sea? They walked on dry ground. Why did it dry up? So that the people of God could pass safely. But when their enemies pursued, we know how that ended up. The Egyptians were swallowed up under the waters. Same thing, too. Um, this is actually prophesied in Isaiah 11. This is, this is pretty cool. Um, I didn't know this before studying it. But let's look at Isaiah 11, 10 and 11, um, and then 14 through, through 16. In that day, now here's the final day, same time period we're looking to, the root of Jesse, Um, Jesse's the father of David, so this would be Christ, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. All the nations of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Kind of sounds like the book of Revelation. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains from his people. So as part of gathering in the, the final of the elect of God, it's, there's also a regrafting in of the people of Israel. So in that, that final day, um, the, re, the remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, and Alam, and Shinar, and Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Um, now jumping up to verse 14. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. Now, in Revelation, the kings are going to be chasing from the east. And together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, enemies of Israel, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And he will wave his hand over the river, you read Euphrates here, with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead his people across in sandals. They're not swimming, they're walking across the Euphrates. And there will be a highway from Assyria, for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. The parallel that we're seeing in Revelation was prophesied by Isaiah. And so this is what God is doing. He is leading his his people out. Their enemies are going to pursue. But just like the Egyptians were put down and we sang the song of Moses, so will the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and all the other enemies, all the uh, kings of the east. And the kings of these, they have the the same marching orders. Verse 13, out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, there were three unclean spirits like frogs. Don't worry about the frogs. What you worry about is that there is one message. There is one enemy. They are in league together and they are calling the, 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 the kings with religious fervor to follow them. They are assembling for battle like we saw in chapter 11, like we'll see in the next two sections. And again, the, 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 the tension builds. And as the attention builds, the, this great demon war is about to happen. As if sensing again that Christ's people might be afraid, he himself now appears to them in verse 15 to reassure them in the fight. Most of your, uh, the, the ESV, I think rightly has a uh, parenthesis here. So just kind of breaking into the account. Jesus himself says, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen as exposed. Okay, we're, we're staring too hard again into the bowls. We need to zoom back out and, and, get, and get perspective. Whew. Christ is coming. Whew. Blessed are the one who wears his righteous garments. Blessed are the one who has received his grace and mercy. Blessed are the ones who stay awake. Blessed are the ones who are not exposed by the world. Blessed are the faithful witnesses. Stay true, my brothers and sisters, I'm coming for you. It's this beautiful intrusion into the text. The enemies may rage, but Christ blesses the militant soldier. Christ blesses the one who wears his righteous garments his righteous armor. Um, this picture of like a thief in the night. Um, Peter picks up on this. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus alludes to this in um, Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse when he says that if the owner of the house knew when the thief was, was coming, he would he'd stay awake and he wouldn't, and he wouldn't break in. It's just this, this idea that none of us know when the thief is coming. If we knew when someone would break into our house, we'd be up with our guns on our laps. But because we don't know, we should always be awake. We should always be sober-minded. Here's what Peter says. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. We're seeing all this consummation wrath picture in Revelation. But here's the point. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, because this will happen, because if this is what will happen at the end of the age, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness This is what we should be. This is what Christ is is telling in his intrusion into into the narrative. Look at me. Rest in me. Live lives of holiness and godliness. Wait for me. The hastening of the coming of the day of the Lord. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Don't worry about the earth. That's coming to an end. Heaven and earth will pass away. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which which righteousness dwells. Brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on your eternal home. Keep your eyes on the new heavens new earth, the land of righteousness. Don't be consumed or overwhelmed or worried about the land of wickedness because God has promised us a land of righteousness. And every step of the way in the book of Revelation, when we start to get discouraged, when we start to get distracted, Jesus reminds us, God is good. God is just. I'm coming for you. Amen? So keep this in mind as we get into the final battle in the seventh bowl. Um, The place they assembled, the place in Hebrew is called Armageddon or um, mouth of Megiddo, or excuse me, mountain of Megiddo. Um, This place is where many great battles um, happened in the life of Israel, and mountains symbolize nations. So these are the uh, greatest enemies of God, all assembled in, in, in one place, or even one mind, one, one heart. Um, uh, we don't have time, but this is uh, prophesied in, in Zechariah 12, 10 and 11, uh, and then into 13.1. So if you want to look at that, should be in your handout. Zechariah 12, the end of Zechariah 12, the beginning of Zechariah 13. Um, this amazing picture of the day when a battle will happen in uh, Megiddo and everyone will, will, will mourn, but out of that uh, mourning will, be, will come a fountain of salvation. Okay, so what do we, what do we take from this? What do we take from this, the first six bowls? Do we worry about where Armageddon's gonna happen? Do we worry about is that the, the, the sore, like, is this, is this the sea? Should we worry about predicting the day? No, we take Jesus' counsel, we stay awake, we be sober. Because if you are clothed in the righteousness of, of Christ, you have an eternal home. So live like it. So walk like it in godliness and holiness and walk in confidence in Christ. And we don't forget the seventh bowl. Um, now, the seventh bowl is, uh, is uh, coming. But who cares where the final battle is, when the final battle will happen, or what will happen at that battle? All that matters is we know who wins that battle. Now, the seventh bowl, this is kind of the culmination of all things. Um, The seventh bowl, like the seventh trumpet, means defeat. It means great victory for Christ. Um, Again, in recapitulation, I just want to show you real quick, 11 verse 15. Uh, Chapter 11 verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. Here's the seventh trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Christ is the king. Christ is victorious. We'll see this defeat again in in chapter 19, where his enemies will be defeated. We'll see it again in chapter 20, where his enemies will be defeated. Why do we need to see the defeat of Christ's enemies so many times? So that we don't forget, so that we don't get discouraged. So that we in our weak and feeble state don't forget what's going to happen. The book of Revelation reminds us again and again, Christ is victorious. Christ will conquer. You are conquerors in him, and he will defeat his enemies. And I will tell, tell you every which way, so that it is ingrained in your feeble little brains. This final bowl is poured out into the air. What is the air affect? Everything. Seas, plants, animals, people. This is the dissolution of heavens and earth as uh, Peter talks about. All the great armies will, will fall. Um, Babylon will fall. We'll get into Babylon a lot more in Babylon next week. There is no way to win. The uh, final defeat, it's even in the air. So now, of course, they're going to repent, right? Now, of course, verse 21, they curse God. Man. Just like the plagues in Egypt, gnats, blood, frogs, darkness, even the death of your firstborn. Will you now submit to God? No. I hate him. I want to pursue him and kill all his people. It's no different now. Satan's whole cause is futile. That's what the book of Revelation is about. Whoever worships him is going to go down with the ship. The Titanic's sinking, and they don't care about the lifeboat. They won't quit. They, they can't quit because they bear his mark, because they worship him. G.K. Beale has a great analogy for this. It's, it, it's like a chess game. Christ on the cross is checkmate. And no matter what you do on that, on that board, no matter how you try to scheme, no matter how Satan tries to move around it, your king is dead. You are dead in the water. You are defeated. And it's futile to try to argue against it. Next week, we're going to zoom back in and really focus on that, on that seventh bowl and the fall of, of, of Babylon. So everything that we've gone through, um, you see in the outline here, the reorientation, the recapitulation, the revelation, the retribution, the ruination. Um, I had fun putting this together. I want us to be revitalized at the end of this. This should be for the revitalization of the church. We should feel more alive and more confident because we know the end of the story. We know our God is just and good. We know our Savior is with us. We know we're clothed in his righteousness for the people of God. This is encouraging. This gives us perspective on our lives. So we shouldn't be surprised at judgment. Just like we shouldn't be surprised of the wicked refusing to repent and cursing God. And we should not be surprised at God's nature. God is just in everything that he does. And he is just in pouring out his wrath. Yet at the same time, he shows us mercy. The God who is full of wrath poured out on his enemies has created us, his people, through faith in Christ. Those who do not wear the mark of the beast, those who wear the mark of the sun and look to him. He has created us as vessels of mercy. And if he created us new in Christ, what can destroy us? He has saved us from our sin. He has saved us from our own wrath. We are secure. And we will one day sing the song of deliverance. We will one day sing the song of Moses. We will one day be the people on the other side of the Red Sea with our enemies destroyed behind us. And we are to be awake and sober and await that day like a thief. But until then, we sing songs like the one we're going to close with, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. I'll give you a few moments to prepare for the Lord's table, this table reminds us of our victory in Christ and the defeat of Satan. And this table is for those who are awake and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your mercy. Praise you for your abundant grace and your steadfast love. You have not forgotten your people. Those who you called, those who you have justified, those who you justified, you will glorify. We are the people of the Exodus and our promised land is soon. But until we eat with you that day in the promised land. We eat the meal of promise. I pray this encourages and reinvigorates your people in the truth of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen.